From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Father Brian Mullady is in the house live from Portland, Oregon. It seems like it's Portland, Oregon right here right now in the middle of a rain shower in Birmingham, That's Alabama. That's what I hear, yes. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you uh, are outside of the United States and Canada, we'd still love to talk to you. That number is one 205 2712985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline all one word at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Thursday, Dominican Father Brian Malady. How are you? Fine, thank you. What does a stuffy old Catholic priest like you know about Pentecost? Come on. Oh, I don't know. I just... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this is my favorite feast coming up. When I was a boy, it was Christmas. When I was a, a young adult, it was Easter. But as I get older, it's uh, Pentecost. Hmm. And the reason is because it's, for one thing, a very beautiful feast. It comes at the end of... Um, the preparation of our Lord to send the Holy Spirit on the apostles and in us, really. In uh, the one of the prayers for the Pentecost, you have the famous, send forth your spirit and they shall be recreated and you shall renew the face of the earth. Now, the world, the earth, is a tired face, battered and bleeding. It seems constantly between wars and insurrections and inflations and all these things that we're constantly experiencing. And this isn't the first generation we've experienced them. It's just like it's been punched out in a sense. And the renewal of the face of the earth, though, has to do with a renewal of our interior life because that's what makes the world seem old to us. In the old mash, you remember, in the, in the uh, extraordinary form, they have this statement, um, I shall go into the altar of God, to God who gives joy to my youth. Now, what youth is they speaking of there? They're speaking of the youth of paradise. The youth when we were coming from the creator fresh and ordered within. When we were truly at peace in our souls. Because our body served our passions, our passions served our intellect and will, and our intellect and will serve God. 
This beauty, of course, was capped by certain special gifts given to us, like infused knowledge and loving obedience, and there was no concupiscence. So we, we really emotionally enjoyed what was good, and had we known evil, we would have shunned it. This, of course, all depended on the gift of grace, and grace which is divine love and which is transformative of us. In his Summa, St. Thomas asks what the difference is between God's love and man's love. And he says, well, they're similar in the sense that they're both the approbation of a good based on a kind of, it's a difficult word to translate, a similarity probably, or sympathy in being. And man, however, has to find the good in a thing to love it, whereas God, in loving it, creates the good in it. And the primary good we all have is being, we share with the whole world. It's also stated in our today's feast that the Holy Spirit is actually the primary moving force, God's love of all the things that exist in the world. Uh, The Spirit of the Lord has filled creation. This is the old entrance antiphon for the Feast of Pentecost for the Mass in Latin. And so this primary experience of God's love is then uh, deepened by the fact that God made us with a spirit, with intelligence and with a will, but its final experience is when we are transformed by grace. So that again, in the words of 2 Peter 1.4, we become partakers of divine nature. The fact that we lost this in original sin, the whole history of the human race up until Pentecost is about recovering it. And on Pentecost Sunday, The peace the Lord spoke of when he was risen from the dead in the upper room is completed. So it's a peace where sin is resolved by the passion. Remember, the Lord shows them his side. And then it's a peace that's completed when he breathes the Holy Spirit into them and gives them the power to forgive sins. And in this marvelous manifestation of the Holy Spirit's coming into the world, which involves a fire of love, and the wind, you could say, or the, the, the great wind, which is God's own truth, we find the completion of what the human race is supposed to be about. And now there really, in a sense, is no more history in the spiritual sense. We're just waiting for the, the Lord to come again. And you'll notice that when the sin is committed, People become lack, first they have lack of peace in themselves, then they have lack of peace with creation, they look on it as hostile, they hide themselves. Then they have lack of peace in marriage because they exploit each other, lack of peace in the family because Cain kills Abel, and it goes all the way down until the very sign of our rationality becomes a sign of our lack of peace with each other, which is speech and babble. Well, the classic idea is that in Pentecost, when the apostles speak with these tongues, and not the glossolalia, but when they speak and preach to all those different people that came to celebrate the Passover, each hears them in his own language, and thus Babel is reversed by Pentecost. And one of the pieces of the liturgy that I most love is the sequence for Pentecost. It's called the Golden Sequence. 
and it in a sense encapsulates all this idea, these ideas and talks about our own spiritual renewal in this way. Holy Spirit, Lord of light, come from thy celestial height. Thy pure beaming radiance give. Come, Father of the poor. Come with treasures which endure. Come, thou light that of all that live. Thou of all counselors the best. Thou the soul's most welcome guest. Sweet refreshing gives us peace. Thus in toil our comfort sweet, pleasant coolness in the heat. Solace in the midst of woe. Light immortal, light divine, visit thou these hearts of thine and our inmost being fill. If you take your grace away, nothing purer in man will say. All his good is turned to ill. Heal our wounds, our strength renew. On our dryness pour thy dew. Wash the stains of guilt away. Bend the stubborn heart and will. Melt the frozen. Warm the chill. Guide the hearts that go astray. You on those who evermore confess you and adore. In your sevenfold gift descend. Give them comfort when they die. Give them life with thee on high. Give them joys that never end. So it has nothing to do with the fact that you look good in red. No. <laughs> Not at all. Thank you, Father. That was beautiful. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. Pick up the phone and grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. And if you're outside of the United States and Canada, fear not. We have a number for you. That number is one. 205-271-2985. And if you are outside of the United States and Canada, we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address again is openline at ewtn.com. That's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Liam in Michigan, Joseph in Ohio, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. The number's 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Be sure to check out Raymond Arroyo and the World Over every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Television and Radio. And you can even have the World Over sent straight to your email box. Simply log on to EWTN.com and click on subscribe. To the phones we go. First up today is Liam in Heartland, Michigan. 
uh, listening on the Ave Maria radio app. Liam, you are on the air. What is your question today? Wait, am I on now? You are on now. What's your question? Uh, um, it's, do angels watch over me when I sleep and I get afraid sometimes? All right. Yes, of course they do. There's a beautiful doctrine we have. When I was a little boy, it was taught very much uh, to the children, especially in Catholic schools, that God loves each of us so much that we each merit a special angel to guard us on our way. And that guardianship occurs not just when we're awake, but also when we're asleep. So... Well, me here. Well, there you go. You, you repeat that, Father. You cut out there for just one second. Angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God's love commits me here, ever this day be at my side to light and guard, to rule and guide. And that's true whether you're awake or asleep. The angels also watch over you then. Very good. So, Liam, don't worry. When you're sleeping, your your guardian angel is watching over you even then. God bless you. Thanks for the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Joseph in the great state of Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Joseph, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, My question is, how awake does one need to be to be culpable for something that would be a a mortal sin if you were awake, awake, wide awake. Um, And when do you know if you take that to confession, and if you can't get the confession, should you refrain from communion? Well, how awake are you awake? That's a very difficult question to answer. Uh, You have to be awake enough so that you can make an act of will. And uh, most people aren't that... You know, they're not that together. I can assure you, uh, even when I wake up, I'm not really awake for a while. <laughs> I don't know how much an act of will I could commit. But you need to be, in other words, you would have done it if you were awake, is the basic way to put that. Also, there's a teaching of the church, but you must be very careful how you apply it, because it's not meant for scrupulous people, that you're somewhat responsible for things that may occur to you when you sleep, if you've set yourself up while you were awake for them. So, for example, if it comes to a sexual difficulty, if you've been watching pornography just before you go to sleep, then in some sense it's called um, voluntary and cause that you've set yourself up for whatever happens during your sleep. Most people, however, if it's just a matter of uh, dreaming, you wouldn't be considered to be responsible for that. And, of course, you wouldn't have to confess that. How awake you should be? Well, again, if you can will it, that's the only answer. And, of course, who knows whether you will something or not. Basically, you're the only one that can know that in such conditions as that. But if you are not aware that you set yourself up for this or you're not aware that you will it, then it wouldn't be considered a sin, but it's merely something that is caused by images in your brain without your will functioning at all. So you would not have to confess that. Does that help, Joseph? Okay. Yeah, it surely does. 
All right. Thank you so much. We appreciate the phone call. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Pam in Pensacola, Florida, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Pam, you're on with Father Brian. Hi, Father Brian. Hi. I have a question. I have a question about confession. When I came into the church, my biggest fear was going to confession. I have been in the church since 87, and... Uh, I have been blessed a couple of times because I've gone through uh, anointing of a sick because I've gone through a couple surgeries here later, lately, and he said that I was absolved from all sins. Now, I never actually did a full confession, do, but I have been to confession and confessed things. Do I have to take everything that I did before I came to the Catholic Church to confession, or but that's my biggest fear? Do I have to take it all to confession, even though I've been to a blessing of the sick? Well, all right, what I'll do is I'll put it this way. First of all, it should be a matter of love, not fear. And what you want to do is to open your conscience completely to our Lord. Now, our teaching is that if you go to confession and you forget a mortal sin, you only have to confess mortal sins, that um, that's forgiven by absolution. However, even in this case, and again, this is something you're not supposed to tell scrupulous people, because they'll just go crazy trying to figure out whether they did this or not. But if you should remember a mortal sin from your past that you know is unconfessed, not that it hasn't been forgiven, but for the sake of the power of the keys, you need to put it under the action of the church, which you do so by confessing it. Now, I'm not sure I got the case completely. You've never been to an integral confession, but only... No, I've been in, I've been in confession, but I've, some of the things I have forgot when I was in confession. Oh, and I have right. done confession. Should, should, you, should you remember them? You need to mention them. The absolution which is involved in the anointing of the sick is in light of the fact that the person is in danger of death. Now, once if you haven't, you know, if you've recovered, then that needs to be mentioned in a regular confession. If it's a mortal sin, not if it's a venial sin, but not that you're not forgiven for the sake of integrity of your soul. Thanks, Pam. We appreciate the call today. Uh, Next up is John on Long Island in New York listening to Veritas Catholic Radio. John, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Oh, hello, Father. Uh, Thank you for taking my call. I'm calling because I'm I'm a faithful Catholic, you know, and uh, I have a very strong faith in Jesus. And um, the one thing I've been struggling with is the Holy Communion. And I, I know I've done some reading, and I know the Protestants believe it's more symbolic. You know, we all believe in doing it, but, you know, it's more symbolic. But I know that we believe it's the actual physical presence of the body and blood. And I was just wondering, what, how, how do we know? How do we know if it was, you know, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, 
if he meant, you know, like symbolically, remember me and everyone do this together for communion or, 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 the, or like the way, you know, the catechism says, how do we know? Well, I think I'll give you the answer Martin Luther gave to another reformer named Zwingli, even though Luther didn't believe totally in our understanding of the real presence. He did believe up to a point. And they had an argument about how Christ was present in the Eucharist. And Zwingli said it was only symbolic, which Luther didn't believe. And so the story is that Luther went up to the board and he took the chalk and he wrote, Hoc est, est, it is anim, corpus meum. The scriptures say this is, not seems to be, not would like to be, not represents, not whatever. This is my body. So even Martin Luther had um, a realistic enough conception of the presence of Christ in the Eucharist to write that. And you remember that Henry VIII refused to allow that to change under pain of death, and it wasn't until he died that they began to tinkle with the doctrine of transubstantiation and basically change it to be... Well, when I was in the seminary, the, the uh, popular thing was to say that um, if you put the host under a microscope, according to the doctrine of transubstantiation, you would see the molecules of Jesus' body. But since people didn't have microscopes in the Middle Ages, I actually attended a lecture where a Franciscan, who became later the head of the Theological Society of America, Catholic Theological Society of America, taught this. If you, uh, They didn't know that wasn't true. So now we know it isn't true, so we have to change our whole idea of what we taught about the Holy Eucharist for 2,000 years. Because, you know, transubstantiation wasn't as developed by Thomas Aquinas. It began as an explanation in about the 12th century or 11th century and was defined by the Council of Fourth Lateran in 1215 in order to keep away from theories that thought it was only symbolic to too realistic a theory where, you know, bleeding hosts and things like that. So what I found amusing was about this lecture wasn't that the person taught this because I knew he was rather radical, but it was the reaction of all the Catholic seminarians which were, oh, he's absolutely right, oh, we have to change our teaching, oh, it's obvious that we've been wrong, oh, etc. And I kept, sat there, and these were all members of other religious orders, and I kept thinking, odd. Sister St. Margaret taught me that wasn't true in the fifth grade. <laughs> that substance doesn't mean chemical molecular substance. It means what a thing is, period. Now, how do you know? Well, there have been Eucharistic miracles to try to help people understand this, like bleeding hosts, although we don't really believe hosts bleed, except by very rare exception for people whose faith is weak. And by just examining what Jesus says about it in the scripture, it's very hard to read John 6 in its original language, because you remember when they object to the fact that he sees you the cannibalism, and Jesus actually doesn't pull back on his teaching, he increases it, and the word he uses is crunch, chew, uh, you know, my body, all right? Now, of course, again, we don't believe that hosts bleed, or we're not eating you know, Jesus' flesh, we're not cannibals. 
But we do believe that what he is in heaven becomes present on earth in the time in the Eucharist when it's, it's changed. And that change survives the Mass. Now, part of the reason it's changed at Mass is because we want to be present at the representation of the sacrifice, the one bloody sacrifice of the cross. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Jim is in the great state of New Jersey listening on the EWTN app. Jim, thanks so much for holding. You're on with Father Brian Mullady. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Father. Uh, um, I have a quick question about um, uh, a friend of uh, mine um, uh, says that they've um, seen uh, her grandparents, she's seen her grandparents, and they've, um, I don't know, the appearance um, during the day. Um, Anyway, she said she's seen them, and they smile at her, and she feels their presence, and uh, on one occasion said, oh, we're so proud of you. And so I want to know, I mean, she was baptized Catholic and currently um, may not be practicing it, but um, what? how would I respond to um, that when she says what she said about seeing her grandparents? I assume these people are dead. Yes, they are. Uh, yeah, I should have said that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's a key part. <laughs> yes, that's an important. Um, well, the dead do communicate with us, and we communicate with them. Uh, we, however, I've known people who've had really weird ideas about this that border on necromancy, where they, they think they can influence the dead after they die, um, in the, and not in the sense of prayers and things, but in the sense of counseling them. Uh, I know one person who wrote a book about, in his dreams, he counsels the dead to accept their death because they're not accepting it. Well, I consider this just beyond the pale. On the other hand, uh, I don't know how to explain seeing them. The world is, lots of things in our world that we can't explain by our philosophy, Horatio, as Hamlet says. Um, maybe they're uh, an ap- just an apparition. Maybe they're produced by their own imagination. But I, I do believe that the dead do communicate with us because I've experienced myself occasionally, not by visions or anything, which I find strange and troubling. But uh, I had a sister friend once who was quite free in correcting me all the time. And uh, every time I'm doing something wrong and I get corrected, I said, okay, I got the message. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I feel there are people watching over me from heaven. Whether I benefit from it or not, I don't really know. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that. The thing that would be wrong with it if you think somehow you're going to alter their destiny 
or you want those kinds of things. And, um, and then you have the, this, uh, sometimes, I'm not saying this is your friends, but I remember when my uh, father uh, had died, my mother in her last year of life used to see him occasionally. And so my sister would say, because uh, she doesn't know much about death or whatever, and she'd say, Dad's, Mom's seeing Dad, do you think she's having a near-death experience? And I said, well, you know, she is on a combination of methadone and, and morphine. <laughs> I have a feeling it has more to do with the drugs than with the spiritual experience. So I really have no answer to this specifically. It could be, and if so, the people should rejoice that their parents are approving them. Um, but there's no way to judge that sort of thing, really. Thanks, Jim. We appreciate the call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Leonard is watching on YouTube, and he says, Is it a sin to donate any part of a human body for further scientific research? All right. Well, it's not a sin, under, but under several conditions. Uh, first of all, you don't need the organ right now while you're still alive. Secondly, people don't hasten your death in order to harvest the organ. And uh, it's actually considered, if you really are dead, um, the kind of act of charity for you to give it for scientific research. Obviously, if you were alive, it might be a different story. But since you're dead, you don't need it. And it wouldn't be considering desecrating your body because you're not taking the thing uh, for any kind of negative reason to desecrate the body. You're taking it to try to benefit mankind. And it may uh, keep them from doing something worse to try to take the organs from some sort of living being or from, for example, aborted tissue, fetuses and things like that. But if you've chosen as an adult, to allow your body to be used for research, that can be an extremely charitable action. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Stephen writes in, I was praying evening prayer out of the Divine Office as has been my practice for many years, and I came across something I had never noticed before. The last intercession read, Be merciful to the faithful departed. Keep them from the power of the evil one. This struck me as odd. Why would the faithful departed need protection? It has always been my understanding that when the faithful die, we either go to heaven or to, pur- uh, to, heaven or to purgatory. This intercession implies we are still in danger of influence by the evil one. How can that be? Are we never free of his interference and influence? Well, I wouldn't really know. Those intercessory prayers are kind of made up hastily by people. And I think sometimes they have questionable theology behind them. In that case, I would, uh, if it says we actually have died instead of are dying, uh, I wouldn't think the devil can influence you unless you're talking by the fact that you a you don't want to go to he- them to go to hell, for, not to allow them to you know to go to hell, or b if you want to try to speed up their purgation and purgatory, 
But otherwise, the devil would have no influence. Yeah, you're correct about that. Uh, Lulu is watching us on YouTube, and she wants to know what angels look like. Have any saints described? <laughs> have any saints ever described them? Well, angels are kind of like what your culture needs them to be in a certain sense, because they don't have bodies. So as a result, the manner in which they're represented is basically in such a way as to, um, in the vision part anyway, to correspond what your culture might consider to be an angelic being. Uh, I know we represent them with wings, but that's basically to emphasize the speed of thought because they're pure intellect. So they don't really have a, a fixed appearance. And it would depend on, I guess, the artistic representation of them and what the purpose of the iconography was of the artist that chose to protect uh, portrayed them in a certain way but no bodies so whatever it is it would conform to a person receiving an experience of an angel of light uh, as you know in, in the Old Testament what was it angels were wrestlers and <laughs> Jacob wrestled <laughs> with the angel and then of course you have the, the light of the, the virgin uh, when she experiences the Gabriel and the Annunciation. And the angel did take a specific form then, apparently. But how, what form that is, it, it's not canonized for any particular experience. Uh, Jane would like to know, do you believe that... This is, this is a chicken or egg. Which came first, the chicken or the egg here? Uh, Jane wants to know, do you believe that God has to change our hearts before we can believe in him? Well, that's an interesting question because it has to do with the whole idea of how grace is received. And I'll tell you what St. Thomas's answer to this is. It depends on what point of view you look at it from. If you look at it from the point of view of radical causality, then God's action is always first. If you look at it from the point of view of time, which is the point of view we look on it in, conversion of hearts always first. But, you know, strictly speaking in causality, it's, it's God himself who always has the initiative in this. But we look on it as a slow, we, we accept this and then we accept that, but that's always caused by the initiative of divine grace. So it's really primarily an example of divine grace, even though when we uh, um, come to convert, we first of all look on the forgiveness of sins as the thing that happens, because that's what happens in time. It comes from a metaphysical distinction, which is like, which is first, the rose or the seed? And Aristotle would say, well, if you consider time, obviously the imperfect precedes the perfect. So the seed precedes the rose. But if you consider strict causality in being, then the whole reason the seed exists is for the rose to, to exist. And so the perfect comes before the imperfect. So the rose comes before the seed in that way of looking at things. And oddly enough, it can even be applied to original sin because the time before the original sin, according to Pope John Paul II, is what he calls a theological prehistory. 
And as you know, one of the statements in the Catechism is that the whole human race is one person, an Adam, as he's represented in the first and second chapter of Genesis. So that would be like the perfect that precedes time, which begins with history, which begins with the sin. So as soon as the sin's committed, the Redeemer's promised, and all the rest in the scriptures, all is from the imperfect to the perfect, which of course then achieved, first of all, in the perfect man, our Lord is born, and then when he dies on the cross in order that we might share in him as the head of the human race and sends us the Holy Spirit and ascends into heaven. So it's an interesting and complicated question. Next up is Joe in the great state of Pennsylvania, listening on the EWTN app. Joe, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Hi, Father. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, recently, in the Gospels, we talk about Jesus and living in oneness with him. And I'm also uh, interested in knowing how that ties in with recent uh Readings from Louisa Picaretta, who talks about living in the divine will and who has been just made a servant of God. Well, I'm not really familiar with the revelations of Louisa Picaretta. I do know they're problematic, all right? Uh, So I wouldn't know the second half of your question. The first half is, of course, because we're in the novena of the Ascension to Pentecost, uh, the Church has chosen for us readings, especially of the Priestly Prayer of John, where uh, first Christ's unity with the Father is discussed, then his unity in the Church is discussed, and then his unity with us is discussed, as members of the Church. And oddly enough, that's the same order as the Roman Canon, uh, the first Eucharistic prayer. So this unity is caused by grace, and by our increased conformity to Christ. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Richard writes, Pope Francis says that prayer leads to faith. What does Father Milady think? (laughs) Well, uh... Lay it on us, Your Holiness. I would say that, again, like Dominican always do, you had to make distinctions, all right? Um, Prayer leads us to faith in the sense that before we convert, you know, we can uh, pray uh, that we'll convert. Once we convert, it's our faith that underlies our prayer, which is charity. And you can't have charity without faith. On the other hand, you can have faith without charity. So uh, I would say that the Pope is there speaking of perhaps people who haven't yet converted totally. And so you have something like, uh, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief from the scripture, remember Peter's prayer. And he's speaking in a very um, loose sense there, not a strict sense. In a strict sense, it's faith that has to be the foundation of our prayer if our prayer is truly not just petitionary external prayer, but it involves a communion of our mind and hearts with God, which is charity. 
Uh, next up is Joe in San Antonio, Texas, listening to us today on Guadalupe Radio. Joe, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, Father and uh, Jack. Thank you. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, my question is: I'm a, I'm a kind of a stand-in or a substitute altar boy at 62 years old. So when there's no but no altar servers, I step in. Recently, we had a visiting priest who was quite elderly, and during the consecration of the blood and the uh, of the bread and the blood, he he forgot to consecrate the blood. Now he's kind of a hard-nosed, stern kind of guy, and he really puts fear into the into people that help during the mass. If we make mistakes, say the lectors or the uh, ushers, or he doesn't have a problem in correcting us. So my question is, would it have been proper for me to correct him and yes. tell him that he missed he missed that part of the mass? Well, yes, because his mass is invalid. And that was going to be my second part: is that mass invalid? Yes, it's invalid. Yes, uh-huh. and he has to complete it. It has to. Oftentimes, elderly people, I know because I'm getting to be one slowly but surely, <laughs> but um, they get distracted and they forget even important things. And um, that, the consecration of the body and the blood is integral to the validity of the Mass. Other things, well, I don't know. Uh, I remember when I uh, was archpriest at a newly ordained priest's first Mass, and, of course, God has an ironic sense of humor. This person was very strict about rubrics. Oh, my gosh. Very strict about he. Even when he said the, for his first Mass, he wanted to be sure he had the canonical digits with the figures together and all that stuff like they used to require in the old liturgy, which is now optional. But um, anyway, so uh, he said the Eucharistic Prayer 1, which was fine. But there's a little portion at the end which he left out. And I couldn't get up there to point to the missile because some deacon was standing between me and this guy. So around the time of the middle of the Our Father, he tumbled to the fact that he left out this part. <laughs> well, I had said it quietly as a consolidant just to be sure there'd be no issues. So he looked at me as, as soon as the Our Father and he said, was it valid? And I looked and I smiled and I said, only slightly illicit. <laughs> because he, he, believe me, he was so concerned about these rubrics. And uh, now those two things are absolutely necessary. And we have had elderly priests in my order that they had to be told they couldn't say mass anymore, especially in the old days before consolidation, because they'd leave out the... They, I mean, we had an old father, Fernet, who'd actually written a book on the Mass. He was German in the novitiate. He said, Vasa de vi consecrate? Yes. Vi better consecrate again. And we do this like five <laughs> times. So finally the prior said, no, he can't say Mass anymore because he, he doesn't remember. You know? <laughs> and we can't be there all day waiting for him to consecrate for his 50th time, you know. But uh, no, those things are, would be, it would have been charitable to mention it to him, even if you were going to get abuse. But I'd be willing to bet you, had he known he left out that, he may not have been grateful, but he would have been thankful Thank, for yeah. being told. Thanks, yeah. Joe. We appreciate that call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. 
Be sure to join us for Dr. Doctor this Saturday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Very interesting show this week. All three of the Dr. Doctor co-hosts are together for a fascinating episode about common diseases in the Bible, what modern illnesses they may have been, and how they were treated back then and how we treat them now. That's Dr. Doctor this Saturday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Jeff in Tyler, Texas, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jeff, you're on with Father Brian. All right, thank you. How are you folks doing today? Peachy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> hey, I was talking to a non-Catholic Christian the other day, and the subject got on to sin. And, and I was explaining to him the power of the Church and, the, and our clergy, that, that sin, sins are for, we can go to them for, for forgiveness of sins. And this person goes, well, Jesus died, and you don't have to ask forgiveness for your sins anymore. And I'm like, I'm thinking, what? So I was wondering if you knew where that came from, and, and what kind of theology is that? I've never heard of that before. Oh, that's Protestant theology. That's the basic normal Protestant theology. Remember, Luther looked on the soul in the state of grace as just having their sins overlooked. But but you were reprobate whatever you did from your point of view. But God just covered them over. Uh, the classic image for this is, though there's a question about whether Luther ever used it, was that great soul in the state of grace is a lump of dung covered by snow. That we're the dung and God's grace is the snow, and there's no interpenetration between the two. Uh, so it doesn't really matter whether you commit sins or not, as long as you accept Jesus as your personal Savior. And I remember I brought up this problem to one of my buddies who was uh, evangelical, and I said, well, you people don't believe in works at all, right? Right. And I said, but you do believe in the Bible. Yep. Little interpretation, yep. I said, what do you do with Matthew 25? You know, which is the judgment. Uh, and what is the basis for your judgment? Works, right? I was hungry and you gave them to eat. I was thirsty. He said, well, that text isn't for Christians. I said, it's not. He says, no, Christians have the white throne of judgment. It doesn't matter what they do. They'll be saved as long as they accept Jesus. And I said, well, where do you find that in the Bible? I later discovered there's one obscure reference to this throne of white judgment in the book of Revelation. But I mean, hello, <laughs> the whole thing is uh, that no one would ever deny you have to do good works, but they just still think that they're all, they have a very negative view of the world. They're all sinners. They're all reprobate as far as they're concerned, but Christ just overlooks it. So why would you go to a priest to have your sins forgiven? First of all, when it doesn't change you at all, it doesn't make any difference. Um, and of course, they, the big problem they have is they do not believe in physical mediation for grace. So remember, the soul goes directly to God, period, and there's no mediation necessary, which would include even Jesus' physical body. Thank you, Jeff. We appreciate the phone call today. Stephanie writes in, she says, My 15-year-old wants to know why God put her in this world, and I'm not quite sure how to answer it. Well, why didn't you try the old catechism? <laughs> Baltimore, here we come. That's right. The second question was, why did God make me? 
<laughs> and the answer was, God made me to show forth his goodness and to make me happy with him in heaven. And showing forth his goodness is really important today because a lot of the teenagers, they commit suicide, they think their life is useless. No, God made me because he loved me to show forth his goodness. And he also made me because he wanted to people heaven to enjoy him. So that's the primary reason. All the other stuff is icing on the cake. But uh, <clears throat> it might be helpful to try the old catechism. Uh, Joshua wants to know, when is a priest in persona Christi? All right, he's in persona Christi, uh, especially at Mass. And also, he'd be partially in persona Christi, but not totally, I would say, in confession. Because remember, there is still an I in confession. I, I absolve you. But at Mass, there's no I. All he does is repeat the words of Jesus. In fact, the I should be left out of it as much as possible because he's not acting as the person whose name is on his passport or his, what is it, international driver's license or <laughs> whatever today. He's acting only in the person of Christ. That's what the meaning of the vestments are and everything, and it's one of the reasons why it's totally inappropriate. There may be times at the Mass where you could bring yourself into it and ad lib, like the homily or something like that. But the Eucharistic prayer is not that time. And uh, it's more than a breach of bad taste to do that. Um, but it comes from a, a modern philosophy even of drama, because the ancient philosophy of drama was I acted in the person of another. The modern theory is I just repeat the words like I'm speaking of about another, but I remain myself. Well, that's, that's not the ancient idea, and it's certainly not the idea which is present in the Mass. Very good. Father Brian, thank you for being so gracious with your time. Would you kindly leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Mullady, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Back at it again tomorrow. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, will be in the house for EWTN's Open Line Friday. Until we get together tomorrow with Colin, God bless.